0: welcome to dear dio your resource for honest advice and real authenticity for your journey from medical school to residency i'm your host michael garrison incoming pgy1 neurology resident and on this episode i brought back the legend himself and my best friend dr howard harrell md and OBGYN. dr harrell is a preceptor at my medical school and has served as faculty at residency programs in the past, so I felt like it was very fitting that he's the perfect person to give this advice. If you are interested in OBGYN, Dr. Harrell has his own podcast where he and his co-host, Dr. Antonio Roberts, provide fresh and evidence-based perspective on all things obstetrics and gynecology. That podcast is called Thinking About OBGYN. But regardless of what specialty you are going into, this conversation is for all of you incoming third-year medical students embarking on their first clinical rotations, as well as fourth-year medical students as they enter their intern year of residency. Dr. Harrell coins the phrase, stay skeptical, in this episode. He also tells us why attitude can be our biggest asset or our greatest pitfall. And then he gives the number one tip for your intern year that you'll have to wait in here. So if you haven't already, go ahead and follow this podcast wherever you're listening. Make sure to give a five-star rating and review if you can. And follow me on Instagram at dear.do.pod. This really helps me figure out, you know, what you guys want to hear next. Reach out to me. Send me your questions. Send me your suggestions. I am all ears. But first. Alrighty. So today I have with me Dr. Howard Harrell, MD. I'm back. He's back. In better than ever. Um, transition between maybe didactics to clinical rotations, but also talking about the transition from going as a medical student to a first-year resident or an intern. So do you want to start us off with maybe anything, any words of wisdom?
1: Yeah, it's an exciting time of year for a lot of folks. I mean, for you getting ready to start residency and people who have just just graduated med school and internships coming up, but also, like you said, for students who are finally ready to get outside of the the classroom setting, or maybe students don't go to the classroom that often anymore, but actually get into the clinical world and start learning some things. And there are things that, you know, I kind of wish that I could tell folks before they start that I think will make them helpful. So it's also a time I think when people are trying to learn and and prep, you know, there's a nervous anxiety right now about the first month of residency or the first rotation of third year or things like that that's exciting and a little scary. But I, I guess there's a few things over the years that I've have observed that I think will make folks have a better year or or so out of their clinical experiences than they otherwise might not.
0: And you're the most qualified, in my opinion, to kind of give this advice, right? Because you have had probably hundreds of students at this point, come through your office, and you were a preceptor. You were you were the preceptor of the year last year at DCOM. So
1: I mean, we don't have to brag about stuff. But yeah, (laughs) I might have won 56 teaching awards. But yeah, I've had about 900 medical students in my life. And, and there's definitely things or patterns of things that I think that medical students will come back and tell me that well, I wish I had known that earlier in the year or had that, had that attitude. A lot of what makes a good resident or a good medical student I think is attitude. And so a lot of the things that I, I wanna mention I think are related to, to just attitudes. So I, I, I often say it's not where you go to residency, it's how you go to residency. And I think that's true too for clinical experiences in the third year. Third years may have great preceptors for a given rotation, and they may not have that awesome a preceptor for a, a clinical rotation. But still, your job as an adult learner in both settings is to take responsibility for your own education. So, yeah. So, I think, I think things that I would encourage students to do, first of all, is to just be skeptical. Don't start third year or internship and assume that your attending physician is blessed with all knowledge and is never wrong about things. Now, hopefully they are, right? I mean, it'd be wonderful if you had a great person to work with, but there's a lot of variation. And and so your job is to learn what is correct and learn how to learn what's correct, not just to parrot back whatever an attending tells you. An attending may be very likable. They may be very uh, skilled at procedures even. They may be loved by patients, and they may do exactly the wrong things in many circumstances. They may not follow well, well-received guidelines. They may not pick the best medicines or have the best workup for different diagnoses, even though their outcomes are reasonably good, or at least reasonably good as far as a new third-year med student or a new intern can look and see. So be skeptical I always tell med students, don't believe anything I say. Look it up and challenge me. Ask me why or where and, and learn how to do that. I think one of the most valuable skills that anybody learns in medical school or in residency is how to look things up and where to find answers that matter. So what that looks like on a daily basis is, and, and I'll say I did this when I was a resident, and, and I think to a large extent I did it when I was a med student, but every day I would have a, a goal of, of making a note to rick, look up five or ten things that I saw or learned that day. One, that encourages you to have this attitude of learning five or ten new things a day. But also, I would write down what I learned, but then I would make it a point of looking it up. And so by the end of third year, by the end of internship, that means you've looked up a lot of things. And so you've learned how to look things up. You've learned where to find good information and things like that. In many cases, you've confirmed what your preceptor or attending told you. And in other cases, you haven't. In other cases, you found that they're doing something that's out of date or they're just doing something maybe different.
0: Super common. Yeah,
1: very common. And, you know, and handle that judiciously. You know, don't go back the next day and say, hey, I looked this up and you're an idiot. But it it is fair game to say, you know, I was reading about that or, you know, in our class, we were taught X, Y, and Z. And I noticed that you did that. And I was just wondering, you know, why you feel like what you're doing is better or something I'm missing here. And in some cases, there will be.
0: Come from a place of curiosity, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. In some cases, there will be something that you're missing completely. And a good attending or a good preceptor will show you that and say, no, you're right. That's appropriate for this. But in this patient circumstance, this is why this set of circumstances was what happened. But when they come back and say, well, that's just the way I was trained or, you know, that's how I've done it and I've had good success with that or something like that. And they're clearly doing something that's not indicated by current guidelines or current best evidence that you've read about. Just make a just make a footnote, you know, a little asterisk in your head and 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 have a tendency maybe to take with a grain of salt what they have told you about everything. But do that with even people that you think are wonderful, because it still is the experience of looking things up. This is true for cognitive knowledge like diagnostics and things that that you might do in the internal medicine world, but it's also true of surgical knowledge. Looking things up every day might be surgical technique. If you're a new surgery intern or any kind of proceduralist, you'll notice all sorts of variety in the way different folks do different things, and you should collect those. Not just so that you can be a good resident and do the surgery or the procedure the way the attending of that day wants you to do it, but so that you can go read about it and understand, is there any evidence about which of these ways is better? There may not be. And if there isn't, and you know that there isn't because you've looked, then you can decide which way you like to do it or which way is easiest for you or things like that. But in some cases there's just unnecessary variation and there is an evidence-based way of doing a procedure correctly. And where there's where that's true, again, you need to learn how to find that and get that knowledge. I remember as a resident, a lot of times doing surgeries or procedures in ways that I knew was the wrong way, but that attending, that's how they wanted it. So that's that's fine. They're the attending, it's their case, you do it the way they want. But in the back of my mind, I'd read the literature, you know, read the surgical books, read whatever and knew that 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 wasn't ideal or that there was a better way. So that's all different. That whole mindset, I think, is different than just going through and assuming that your attending or preceptor is telling you the latest, greatest, best way of everything, that they are endowed with all knowledge from God on high and just memorizing it.
0: And it won't serve you well on the test either if they're if they're feeding you wrong yeah. knowledge.
1: Yeah, especially right, especially if they're wrong. But even when they're right, even when they're right, you still need to know the why, not just the what. So, and that again, that's true in 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 the sort of medicine world and in the surgical world. In the surgical world, there are a lot of great surgery residents who can do the surgery very well. Let's say an appendectomy or something, and they know how to position the patient and put the trocars in. They know the anatomy. They know how to take the appendix out. They know their instruments to use. They know how to close. And they do a great job of it. And they might have learned from an attending who equally does a great job. But then they don't understand the why. Like, why did we put the trocars in those places? Why did we use this size of trocar? Why did we use that staple device? Why did we use this antibiotic? Mm -hmm. Why did we use that skin prep? Those sorts of things. And, And so... You you really have to consciously work at finding the whys of things.
0: I want to add, so you said learn the why, not the what. And I want to add to that asking yourself what if at the end of that. So there's there's a what, there's a why, and then there should be a what if as your next stage. And that's something that I use time and time again okay, this is, this is why we're doing this. This is why we are putting the trocars in this way, but what if we did it a different way? What if this patient had an anatomical variant? Then how would we, how would we position those trocars? What if the patient was allergic to this antibiotic? Going through your head in different kinds of scenarios allows you to not only learn from the patient that's in front of you, but allows you to maybe apply that to future patients because nobody's gonna be a carbon copy patient.
1: Yeah, so that encourages lateral thinking. And it also, as you said, instead of getting knowledge about one case, all of a sudden you've learned about 10 cases. Mm -hmm. It's the same with clinical vignettes. If you're studying clinical vignettes for a test, A a good use of that vignette would be to say, all right, well, well, what if they had this instead, or as you said, they're allergic to that antibiotic or whatever, because that's, as you said, that's real life. You're going to encounter wide amounts of variation. And for every surgery or procedure or patient case, even in a medical sense that you encounter, if you're learning, you can turn that into five or 10 things. Definitely. The other thing I always encourage students to do, and residents even more so, is Read about the patients that you see that day. So yes, you need to study and get through you know, whatever your assigned things are. But if you meet a patient that day who has cirrhosis or something, you should go and read about cirrhosis that day. Both because it's going to be fresh in your mind and you're going to attach it to a real human being and a real patient that you've taken care of but also because you're probably going to see them again the next day and you're going to have learned the best current management, valuation, treatment, or whatever for the disease that they have. And you're going to be able to apply it in the real world. So you're going to do better medicine. You're going to learn where to find the information and good sources of information. And you're going to attach it to a real person that you've taken care of, which is just a fantastic memory aid. And most physicians will tell you, 30 years later, oh, I remember Mrs. Smith, the first person I saw with X, and this is what happened to her. And that's just a fantastic way of memorizing and and learning things for the long term. So uh, read about your patients. So I did that. If I had a, a diagnosis I hadn't seen before or didn't have at least good expertise in, then I would find a review article. Again, learning the skill of how to find a good review article. And these are usually on the order of 6 to 12 pages, something like that. And I would read it that day, at least one diagnosis a day. And you do that through a year of internship or a year of third year of medical school. And you've read about you know 250 different things. You've read 250 review articles. Man, you're way ahead of other people if you've done that. So that's, so that's something I recommend as well.
0: You've told me this and on my very first rotation of third year I had my nephrology rotation and my preceptor told me if you learn one thing every day you'll have learned 356 things in a year and that's that's something to to really be proud of and you know you mentioned yeah going back and learning xy and z about your patients that day and this goes back to something that I talked about last week with Dr. Bullocko was efficiency, learning efficiency really quick in your intern year or in your third year with the the mundane things like writing notes and, uh, you know, looking for things, you know, learn, learn your hospital, learn your EMR very early on. That way you can focus more time on learning about your patients. And I know that you just, you just mentioned about, you know, reading articles, but where do you recommend people finding these articles like PubMed or,
1: yeah. It depends on the specialty. And so that, again, that's one of the things. So I'll give you two answers and then I'll go back to your conversation with Dr. Blecco because I thought that was awesome too. So the first one is if you're just a third year med student and you're getting ready to start third year, one of the things I highly recommend is that you just Google whatever diagnosis you're interested in plus the letters AAFP. And that will take you to a review article on just about every diagnosis you can think of from the American Academy of Family Physicians. And they're wonderful, they're peer reviewed. All of them are free, the PDFs are free to get unless it was published I think in the last year. And then you need uh, a paywall a membership in the AFP to get it, which as a student I think you can get for free as well. But they're immediately accessible anywhere you're at and they're wonderful, they're peer reviewed, they're expert articles. Some of them might be eight or 10 years old and don't be put off by that. That's because they don't need to write a new one. (laughs) You know, like not a lot's changed in the management of certain things. And so they're not writing these brand new every year. But they're all great places to start for a student in particular and, and maybe for an intern in family medicine or internal medicine, something like that because they provide a very consistent way the information is there. They, they tell you things like the likelihood ratios of, of tests that you're going to use. They tell you the, the relative cost of medications. They, they have nice differential diagnoses. They'll present diagnosis scripts for different diagnoses. They're all wonderful. And I, to this day, use at least that as a resource once or twice a week. If I see a patient who has a diagnosis that I don't treat all the time, and I just want to make sure that I'm not missing anything or I'm using you know, the best up-to-date treatment, then I can find that out really quickly. So yes, I I highly encourage uh, folks to do that. Now, as an intern, you're going to move beyond that. Unless you're in family medicine, then that is also your answer. So a family medicine intern should make a point of reading all those articles at some point in their residency. And I'm an OBGYN, so in, in my field, there are Uh, expert articles or consensus articles in the Green Journal. That's my obstetrics and gynecology. In a given year, there's eight or ten of these. So like for me, there's there's an article on preeclampsia, on gestational diabetes, on preterm labor, on preterm rupture of membranes, you know, on endometriosis, on dysmenorrhea, et cetera. And so those is where those are where I would have a resident or intern start. And and when I had residents in OBGYN, I provided those to them. I said, here's the list. You know, here's the expert consensus articles from the last several years. And if you read those, you're already in OBGYN practically. And that'll be true for so every specialty has their resource like that. And every specialty has current review articles. And so that's one of the things you'll learn is where are the good review articles from my specialty? And then if you're in cardiology, you know, you're going to read, or or internal medicine, you're going to read COPD, and you're going to read congestive heart failure, and you're going to read, you know, hypertension, you're going to read acute angina, whatever it is, and you're going to read those review articles. And again, over the course of an intern year, you're going to be really good if you've read those articles. And you really need to do that as a primary starting point. The mistake, actually, is to go straight into PubMed and search for literature, because, You can find literature that says everything. And you can find crazy studies. You can find studies published in 2023 that that have conclusions that are completely opposite of what we're actually doing in clinical medicine.
0: Doesn't mean that you should be doing them.
1: Yeah, like, yeah, that's a mistake people make sometimes. They say, oh, there's this brand new article from, you know, some obscure journal of whatever, and they did this, so I'm just going to start doing that. And you're not ready to make those decisions. So you need background, and that's why a good expert review article – will give you that and give you the lay of the land. And then you can say, okay, well, we've been using this drug for treatment. Now there's some new literature that that's questioning that. And now you're qualified to maybe start dipping your toes into that literature.
0: And you're a little skeptical about things like up to date. I know that everyone loves to use up to date in you know, residency.
1: I'm skeptical about everything.
0: Stay skeptical. We're all a little yeah. skeptical here.
1: Well, that's my big, that's my big two word motto here is be skeptical. But yeah, so up to date, you know, if I was working in the ER tonight and um, and somebody came in with a diagnosis I didn't know about, up to date will keep me out of trouble. Um, I can go on there quickly and find out, you know, the doses of antibiotics or other medicines or things like that. So up not a horrible resource, but it is not a peer reviewed academic resource either. Uh, these are articles written by people, many of whom are not content experts. Some of whom are, there's some fantastic ones too, but you don't know that when you read it. Right. And, they can, and a lot of them just have people's opinions. It's sort of what do I do with a very superficial uh, view of the literature that supports what they do and not a balanced, questioned, peer reviewed, arbitrated article. So I would much rather read an AAFP article on say diabetes than an up-to-date article on diabetes. And by the way, the AAFP article is free and shorter. Yeah. So, so yeah, I would, I would move beyond up to date. And if you're a content expert in something, you're going to be a content expert in neurology. I'm a content expert in OBGYN. I expect you to know a lot more than what's in up to date. I expect you to be able to read an up to date article and say, yeah, that guy's full of it. Or no, that's wrong. We haven't done that in eight years. Mm -hmm. A lot of these, again, they pay the authors Mm -hmm. and they don't pay them very much. So I've done some professional writing for money for companies. And, you know, I'm paid somewhere around $800 per 500 words. They pay less than that for an entire up-to-date article. So people write them because they need the money, which means they're usually residents, maybe fellows. Or they write them because they want to influence a controversial topic. And so that's problematic because no, that's what peer review hopefully adds is some balance. So it is what it is. It's it. You know, I I wouldn't read up to date and think that you're an expert on something. Are they are they horrible? No, they're not horrible. But again, AAFP articles have fulfilled that general need for me, and I know the AAFP process is wonderful. All these articles start with a librarian who does an intense literature review that's provided to hand-selected authors and then of course they undergo a peer review process. So they're, they're really good articles. Uh, but yeah, you'll learn all that in your own field.
0: And you would recommend these AFP articles to both third-year medical students and incoming interns, correct?
1: I think interns certainly in primary care, you know, internal medicine or, or family medicine, you know, they are, they're meant obviously for family medicine, but family medicine is so broad that they cover such a broad array of diagnoses. Right, right. But if you get into a specific specialty, you'll learn those sources for your own specialty. Now, the point you were making about not getting caught up in the trifles of internship is hugely important. So I've talked to folks who, during internship, just feel like glorified paperwork shufflers and secretaries. And, and, and you don't want to do that. You want to get really efficient at things like P's and discharge summaries and operative notes and things like that, if you're spending more than an hour or two on paperwork as an intern, you need to do something different. Mm-hmm. And in the age of EHR, that means like very quickly figure out the best shortcut or dot phrases for Epic or, you know, every, every software has this. Figure out how to become really efficient at HMPs, discharge summaries, procedure notes, whatever it is that you do a lot of. Because you just don't need, you're not, your job as an intern is not to be a glorified uh, paper shuffler or or secretary. So, and then I guess the other things that I I wanted to talk about just in general that students tell me is valuable or, or, you know, really I challenge students on is why, why did you order that lab? You know, how does that lab change our management? What is the evidence for that? And so the classic example, I think, of this, and and actually there's an article in um, either JAMA or the New England Journal of Medicine, I can't remember which, a couple of weeks ago, a study of this is the urinalysis in the ER. So virtually every patient goes to the emergency room, and at least female patients. I don't, again, I don't see male patients, so I'm biased here, <laughs> but but the female patients certainly go. And it's part of a rainbow panel, you know, draw one of every lab vial of every color. And they'll include a urinalysis in that. And the urinalyses are ran, like, it seems like, regardless of what the complaint was.
0: I think it's coming from a place of fear. Well. They're afraid that something is going to get missed and then they're going to get sued.
1: Maybe. But if a patient comes in with a cough, why did you think they had a urinary tract infection?
0: I know. I'm just playing devil's advocate.
1: (laughs) No, I know. No, I know. No, I I think that there's inefficiencies there and, and that sort of thing. But but again, it is what it is. This recent article I was talking about talks about the burden of overdiagnosis of UTI and overutilization of antibiotics because of this routine lab that really doesn't offer anything. So again, what I would say to the student is and and you know, UA to the ER, but this could be you see this that, that's just a metaphor really for this problem. This could be the daily CBC that the surgeon orders on a patient or the daily CBC, CMP, MAG, and FOS that the internal medicine doctor orders on a patient or something like that. Everybody has their little standardized labs. And, and again, the question that I would challenge you with as a, as a learner is say to yourself, how is this lab gonna change what we're doing? What's my clinical suspicion that makes this lab necessary And am I going to do something different if the lab comes back? Mm -hmm. I'll tell a a real quick story. I once had a, a student who unfortunately developed multiple sclerosis and she came to see me and I actually kind of said, yeah, this is either, you know, syphilis or multiple sclerosis. And uh, given her a presentation. And, you know, she didn't have syphilis, so, but she needed to get an MRI for confirmation and then, of course, start steroids uh, if she had MS. And so, practically speaking, I went and asked one of my colleagues in internal medicine, they're like, yeah, you're going to, it's going to take you two weeks to get the MRI ordered. Just put her in the hospital, order the MRI, and then if it comes back positive, we can go ahead and get her a neuro consult and the steroids on board. And so I said, well, I don't really do general medicine admissions. Why don't you do it for me? Oh, sure, no problem. So she had her intern admit this patient to the hospital. And her only purpose in being there was to get an MRI. Well, they repeated all the labs. Because I I did check for syphilis. You know, like I checked. They repeated all the labs, even though they were just done that day and were negative or the day before. And then they ordered just standing labs. Like, here's a patient with no medical condition, not on IV fluids, not receiving any medicines that alter the physiology of the body. And we're getting a daily CBC and a daily CMP and we're getting vital signs every four to six hours and we're monitoring urine output and all these things that are just in a standing order panel. And she was very frustrated by that. Like, why, I'm not a pincushion and I don't need to be woke up at uh, midnight and then again at 3 a.m. so I, you can see that my blood pressure still is normal since I have no history of that, and you're not giving me any medicine that alters it. So again, the, the lesson there is to ask, you know, what, go through the process of what's really necessary. And, and I would say that's true of physical exam, too. So, you know, a lab and a physical exam are both just interrogations of a person. And so if you're doing a particular piece of physical exam, you should ask the question, why? Mm-hmm. Now, I will say that when you're a student or when you're an intern, you want to do as many physical exams as possible because one of the beautiful things about learning medicine is learning what normal exams are and what normal variation in exams are, but appreciate that that doesn't necessarily carry over into real life. It's okay to say, I'm going to palpate this patient's thyroids and do a complete neuro exam or something because I'm learning and the patient is willing to let me do that, even though at the same time you can say they don't have an indication for this exam. And I think that gets lost on people, and then, and then, unfortunately, they graduate from residency and they think that every single patient needs every single exam every single time. But when you think about it for a second, it, it's kind of silly. Again, that same patient I just mentioned, mm-hmm. she's having, you know, a, an intern and maybe a chief and an attending and a nurse come and listen to her heart three times a day, or you know, it's like I'm not here for a cardiopulmonary problem. And then, of course, it also then. When it just becomes something you do because you think you're supposed to and you need to document it, then it loses its value because you know those cardiopulmonary exams are not good cardiopulmonary exams.
0: And they're over the shirt. They're over like three layers of clothing.
1: Yeah, it grazes your chest for four seconds. And somehow you've said that these people have a normal cardiopulmonary exam. On the other hand, please, as a student and a resident, learn how to do a really good cardiopulmonary exam. And it's going to take you five or six minutes at a minimum. If you're really doing the things that you should do and do them as often as you can and learn normals and things like that. But in your mind, I'm saying, say, I'm doing this for my education. Thankful to have a patient who's allowing me to do that. I'm not doing it for the patient's benefit and, and mm-hmm. just understand those things. So um,
0: that's a good distinction to make.
1: I think I'll say, I'll say a couple of other things before we finish, especially for people going into surgery or procedural fields. I think I learned more from bad surgeons than I did from good ones. But again, this is another attitude opportunity. Yeah. So I would look and say, okay, I read about the way this procedure is supposed to be done. I've seen other people do the procedure and, you know, it shouldn't take this long or they don't struggle with this part like this person does. And then he asks the questions, why are they struggling? How could I make their job easier? Maybe I can retract better for them. Maybe they have a, a need for a tool or something they don't have maybe they just don't have a good technique. And then you try to answer those questions. And the attending doesn't know the answer. If they did, they wouldn't be struggling. But your job is to find out. And that comes again from reading about the procedures, reading different techniques for the procedure, watching videos. YouTube's actually a fantastic resource for all procedures and surgeries and watching lots of different people and the way they do it. Mm -hmm. And finding out where there's randomized trials that compare one to the other. But but I can remember as a student as and as a resident sitting there watching bad surgery and thinking to myself, okay, this is what they're doing wrong. Here's how this could be done better.
0: Yeah. I think that in surgery is one of the settings that attitude can really come out um, in a bad way and it can foster kind of negative environments. And I think... I saw the most attitude change in myself when I saw negative attitude in the OR, and I would just remember being like, I will never be like that. I never want to be like that. This is a perfect example of what not to be, and sometimes that example of what not to be is more powerful than the example of what to be.
1: Yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying. And so learn learn from people. Learn from Look at the doctors who don't have uh, everything going well for them and, and learn the inverse from that and how to not make the same mistakes. The other thing I would say is learn your guidelines for your field. Like just up front, learn the guidelines. And every time you see guidelines violated, which is sometimes appropriate due to a difference in the patient characteristics or special circumstances or just finances or things like that, but at least every time, ask the question: Why did we not do this the normal way? Why did we violate the guideline? And sometimes the answer is, we committed malpractice. <laughs> we, we, we messed up. That attending doesn't know what they're doing.
0: Yeah, and sometimes there is no guideline, right? Like uh, That's that true. happens. That happens a lot in neurology because it is such a changing field all of the time. Uh, that was something that I had to get used to very quickly, especially coming from coming from your rotation uh, and then going on my auditions I very quickly realized like it's it's not really the same because the things that we do in neurology a lot of the times when we get a mag level it's like why are we getting the mag level but at the same time there's not really an indication but there's not a contraindication and it's just a lot of a lot of gray area.
1: Yeah. Well, the, the point is to understand that and acknowledge Yes, it.
0: exactly. And then
1: there are obviously, there are a lot of things that are just of expert opinion, and you'll, you'll learn to weigh those things with what information you have. Again, the MAG level is an example. I would just ask a simple question, if this is high or low or normal, does it change what we're going to do? And if you can identify how it does, then order the level. It's fine.
0: What's it called in like terms of tier of evidence? Um, So, you know, you have a guideline and that guideline is fixed. So we know that when a person comes in with an MS flare, we're going to throw steroids at them unless there's a contraindication. And that's a guideline. Anything below that is like a strong suggestion.
1: Yeah, well, there's different ways of doing that. So from in the terms of scientific consensus stuff, that's level five, opinions level five. But in terms of, the you know, there's a system of A, B, C, and D recommendations. And that's another nice thing about like AFP articles is they'll list those recommendations and they'll grade them. So obviously A stuff is great, D is don't do. And then, you know, something like the MAG level for the situation you're describing might be a C recommendation. Well, we don't know. It doesn't seem to harm. We don't have clear evidence of benefit. Whereas A's are things you really should be doing all the time and B's are probably pretty good and D's you should never do. So, yeah, there, there are Grady recommendations, mm-hmm. and that's something you should know for things. I think that's important, too. Like, how potent or powerful is the intervention we're doing for people? A lot of people think, for example, that, you know, statins are just, they're the most important thing ever. And they are for certain patients. But on the whole, they're not super meaningful for patients. I'm not attacking them, but I'm just saying learn the magnitude of the benefit of the interventions you do. That should be something you should be able to answer. The number needed to treat, the number needed to harm what risk we're actually reducing things like that and that will help you just take care of patients better especially where you know really people are not hurt by uh, simvastatin but in cases where in, in cases where there is potential harm you should know that you should know the specific number needed to treat and harm
0: yeah i think what you're saying is to stay skeptical regardless of if it's a guideline if it's a b recommendation a c recommendation stay skeptical why does this exist why do we care about it et cetera?
1: Yeah, I think that's my bottom line is is be skeptical and don't assume that your preceptors and attendings know everything. Hopefully they do and hopefully they're great people, but regardless, your job is to learn and to look things up and learn how to look things up and understand why what's happening is happening.
0: And it's really easy. It's really easy to come in as a third year and be like, "Oh, this person definitely knows what they're talking about." Oh yeah. They they have all these letters at the end of their name and they're in charge of teaching me. I have to follow everything that they do and of course you have to I mean you have to do what they say obviously but to ask ask yourself why and kind of balancing that attitude of questioning but respectful curious but not condescending.
1: Yeah, you're not trying to upset anybody, but you are trying to become the best doctor you can be. So, yeah, I think that's I think that's my advice. It's an exciting time for folks. And I will say that third year of medical school and internship are the two most transformational years of your life so as you talked about last episode of having efficiency so you're not wasting that time doing things that you don't need to be doing but approaching that whole year with i mean you're going to learn so much uh, you're going to learn so much in third year way more really than in the first two years if you do it right And again, that's going to like multiply down again in internship and your habits will be set. And so if you develop good habits of learning and healthy skepticism and looking for evidence and asking why and asking, you know, how this changes our management and asking lateral thinking questions like what else could this be? Or, you know, what if this patient had a different presentation and you do that all the time and you make that a habit, then you'll be a great doctor your whole life.
0: That's great advice. I have a question about attitude coming in with a positive attitude, you said, was number one on your list of things that you should be doing as a third year going into clinical rotations or a first year intern. And in terms of interns, I think that the people that will probably struggle to resonate with that message the most are people who soaked into their programs, people who maybe that's not where they wanted to be, but they ended up there somehow. So how do you recommend them coming in with a positive attitude?
1: Well, again, it's not where you go. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I mean, I think a lot of people, if they're honest with themselves, will look back later in life and say, my residency graduated some really great people and some really bad people. And, you know, what's the difference? It was the same attendings. It was the same patient experience, the same rotations, the same clinical experiences. And the difference, I, I promise you, will get down to the attitude of the individual learner who took their learning you know, or took it seriously and, and, and understood the importance of self-education and self-directed education, at least. So I would say to that person who soaped in, be thankful that you matched somewhere, <laughs> even if it was through the soap, and embrace it. Like, take the bulls by the horn. This is your opportunity that, that you have been given. Don't dwell on misfortune. Don't think about what could have been Don't think about, you know, what you did wrong or how you were screwed over or something like that, but instead say, I'm lucky to be here and lead with gratitude. I think the older you get in life, the more you appreciate that gratitude, gratitude, and I don't want to rhyme because it's going to sound glitchy, but gratitude and attitude really are the most important things and come in each day and be thankful that you have patients that need you to take care of them and that's your responsibility and dedication uh, to them is your job and do it. Do it. Be excellent in in everything that, that you do.
0: Definitely. Don't let your ego get in the way of you helping patients because that's detrimental to both yourself and people around you. Well, thank you so much for giving me those words of wisdom that I'm going to carry with me forever.
1: Just that conversation, just that last part, I'll leave you with a quote from Martin Luther King Jr., If a man is called a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. So that's what I would say to the folks that are disappointed about where they're at or what they're doing is uh, just go out there and be Michelangelo.
0: So this brings us to the final segment of my show where I, or my lovely guest, sends you home with something that they really love, that they want to set you up with, and we are calling that their final recs. So I know Dr. Harrell, you have an amazing book out there. Would you like to use that as your final rec today?
1: I mean, if you're going to make me. Yeah. (laughs) It is obviously I believe in the book, but yeah, I've read a book called Clinical Reasoning that goes through some of the things we've talked about, but goes through how to interpret medical literature, how to make differential diagnoses, and it really centers around you know, the probability theory of, of how to do those things well, because statistics have a lot to do with how we practice medicine. And so we organize our differential diagnoses in order of probability, and we make diagnoses based upon whether you realize it or not, based upon statistics, and we interpret tests based upon things like, I mentioned before, likelihood ratios or things like that. So certainly if you don't know what a likelihood ratio is and you don't routinely think about pre-test and post-test probability when you order tests, you probably should read my book.
0: And even if you don't like statistics, the first chapter is great.
1: <laughs> she doesn't like chapter five. It sounds like you can skip chapter five, but yeah, you can get it as an ebook for nine ninety nine on Amazon and read it on your spring break. I don't know.
0: Well, we're all on this, you know, two months off until July 1st, when we all start this, Yeah. this crazy journey of residency. So I think that that would be the perfect time for people to pick up this book, read it on the beach.
1: I do say, I think that, you know, thinking is what we're really paid to do. And a lot of what we've talked about today are, are co- purely cognitive skills. I mean, I think residents go in and, and clerks go in to third year and in internship thinking that they need to practice knot tying and they need to learn how to do a pap smear and they need to, have, you know, these skills and these practical things. And you do, you do need to do that, do a neuro exam or whatever. But the most important thing we do is think and think critically. So that's what the book's about.
0: All right. So I hope that you guys felt like that conversation was helpful. I hope that you walked away from this conversation feeling like maybe you can go out into clinical rotations or during your intern year and take some of these pieces of advice with you. Stay skeptical, have a good attitude, and make sure that you are becoming as efficient as you can as early on as you can. Like Dr. Harrell said, that'll help you not only be a better Physician, but help you better take care of your patients. So, as always, thank you so much for listening. You can follow me on Instagram at dear.do.pod. You can visit my website, dear.do.pod.com, for blog post guides, and you can anonymously ask all of your med school questions. But of course, you can always ask not anonymously, I guess, on Instagram by shooting me a DM. Let me know what you want to hear about next week, any suggestions that you have for me. I'm all ears. Original music by Cologne, recording and production by yours truly, and I hope to see you here next time.